Man, if you will, open your Bible to the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 2 will begin uh, our reading in just a moment in verse 4. Again, Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, we'll read uh, through the end of the chapter in verse 25 as we uh, return uh, after uh, uh, a one-week break, having the privilege of having uh, rejoiced with us uh, last week. I want us to uh, continue uh, our thinking uh, on the essential family and see it as God's good design. Uh, for humanity. Now, I don't think it's wise or even possible to pretend that we live in a benign or a benevolent culture. In fact, I would call it a malignant culture or a culture with a terminal malignancy, it seems. We now live in a culture in which at least a radical fringe is exercising an outsized influence upon the world. See Bud Light, Target, Disney, ESPN, Nike, Ford, the list goes on and on. Uh, The little bit of commercial television that I happen to watch somewhere between, say, one-third and two-thirds of the commercials uh, celebrate some type of moral uh, perversity. This influence shouldn't shock us. That is, while it still isn't exceptional for the non-Christian world to affirm or at least not attack morality definitively rooted in biblical revelation, we should be aware that the unbeliever, no matter how logical, no matter how rational or even moral they are, because they have a sin-deadened heart, a mind ignorant to the truth, a will disposed to rebellion, and a nature entrenched in disobedience, they are easily seduced into the supposed wisdom, logic, and argumentation of the world. We have seen individual after individual, and institution after institution, with increasing volume, increasing momentum, and increasing vigor, deny what was previously held to be true. Assault that which was previously embraced as virtuous and destroy what was once entrenched as healthy and essential while celebrating as a virtue that which was previously rejected as vice. The economic world, the academic world, the media and entertainment world, the political world, and most tragically far too much of the religious world has succumbed to the destructive, devious, and deviant spirit of this current age. Now, while it's true that it is important to know what we are standing for and fighting against, it is more important to know that which we are standing upon and for, and yes, fighting to defend. It is by knowing what the truth is and why it is the truth and why we believe it We can identify the error, the enemy, and the egregious inroads they are making upon reality and reality's God. There is not only no compromise, there is no middle ground, and increasingly, there is no place to hide. We must and we will will shine in this dark world or we run the danger of 
being extinguished and possibly even exterminated in our day. So read with me God's Word, God's Word for us from the book of Genesis chapter 2 verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had sprung yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom it had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and onyx stone are there. Uh, the name of the second river is Gion. And it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man, or out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. It is your truth. It is that which you have uh, revealed. You have established for us how it is that we should live in this earth upon your good creation, utilizing that which you have blessed us with. It is wise and it is good for us. May we see your truth, may we understand that you have given these good things as a testimony to yourself, 
as a testimony to your son, as a testimony uh, to the gospel that your son accomplished on the cross at Calvary. Lord, I pray that you would bless us so that we may understand and that we may indeed obey. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In past years, we have examined the biblical concept of the human family. We have appropriately emphasized the essential role that God's designs for the family plays in human flourishing. We have attempted to teach the biblical admonitions in such a way that each individual and each family may follow God's plan for their well-being. The plan is good for each of the individuals within the family, and it is good for the family itself, and it is good for the well-being of the society at large. The doctrine of the family is an abstract doctrine that is to be relegated to the realm of the obscure, the unattainable, the irrelevant, or the impractical. It is both practical and transcendent truth to be embraced, employed, and defended for the good of current and future generations. The modern assault on the family isn't really a new thing. It is an assault and a rebellion as old as the original rebellion within the corridors of heaven. In that rebellion, Lucifer, the chief cherubim, was cast down from heaven. So whatever might be rightly said about the deviant and destructive war unleashed upon the family, we must understand that the assault is deeply rooted in cosmic rebellion and far, it is far more widespread than the destruction of the family. The assault isn't limited to the family. The assault reaches into the very foundations of God-ordained reality. To undermine reality is to attempt to overthrow God in His well-designed order. God put reality and order in place as a self-revelation of His glory, a glory that is visible through all that is, whether physical reality or metaphysical reality. So, the current attempts at redefining every aspect of reality in terms of human autonomous preferences and identities are nothing less than an assault upon God and upon those who bear His image. To be sure, the assault comes in the form of an attempt to destroy God's creation, but nonetheless, the real desire is to erase all testimony to a God who is good and wise and sovereign and holy, who is a majestic creator, who defines, who determines that which is right, true, valuable, and virtuous. So the current assault on the family is an assault upon humanity, which is an assault upon reality, which is a futile assault upon God. God will not be threatened, and his person, in, and his person, his work, and his reality will stand unchanged. What will be destroyed are the moral revolutionaries and both their informed allies and their ill-informed sycophants. While 
God and truth will ultimately be victorious. We fight, we contend through the sword of the Spirit, prayerfully seeking to lower the current casualty rate and limit the catastrophe of all the collateral damage we're seeing in our world. And so as we look back, remember from Genesis 1, we looked at that which is fundamental, that which is foundational to our existence. God established that which is fixed and that which is essential. Maybe the most important thing that we can say about all of it is God is the creator and man is the creature. And too many times we as human beings get those two identities and two realities confused. God created us as complementary image bearers to share in the mandate to represent him and to rule and to fill and to manage his good creation. So God's design is good, it's wise, and it's essential. It is a fool's errand to disregard that which God has designed as good for us. All attacks upon human identity, whether it's abortion, whether this this business of gender disorientation and perversion, whether it's an attack upon objective truth and its corollary morality, all these are assaults upon humanity, upon reality, and upon God. And so again, we can't be flippant, we can't be dismissive, we must understand that we do not have the option of saying, well, that's for those people to worry about. These are matters that we need to be vitally concerned regarding and very much passionately involved in. So we come to verse 4 of chapter 2, and we find one of the literary framing devices that appears 11 times through the book of Genesis. You know, I've talked a lot in, in past weeks about how to structure things so that you can learn and you can utilize the information given to you. And one of the things we've talked a good bit about is how, whether a sermon or an outline or a book of the Bible, how it is structured, how it is organized, how it is ordered. And so one of the ways you can look at the book of Genesis is to find the 11 times that the Hebrew word toledot is used. Translated here, these are the generations. Now, you know, what, you know what that's talking about? And all God's people say, that's my favorite part of the Bible. I just love reading the genealogies. I just love reading all those hard names that I can't pronounce. And I'm wondering, what in the world are they there for? But they are certainly there for a purpose. And tells us a great deal about foundational issues and about God's plan for humanity. And so typically what follows the, these are the generations, the Toledot, is a list of names. 
okay? This is the family of this particular individual. These are the descendants from that particular uh, individual, and usually you can pretty quickly identify. Here are the believing descendants, here are the unbelieving descendants. They are in those lists, and they're there uh, for a purpose. Here, this is the genealogy, this is the descendants of the earth. Namely, we see Adam being what? Formed out of the dust of the ground. He is the singular one formed in this unique way. And so first of all, we're going to look at the context for the man or the context prepared for the man. We have what is often referred to as a second account of creation and specifically the creation of the man. We looked at uh, the passage last week uh, there in chapter 1 verses 26 through the end of the chapter dealing with the creation of man and uh, certainly uh, there have been all kinds of liberals over the years that talk about uh, different sources for the book of Genesis and talk about you know that, that this shouldn't be there and this contradicts that. Folks we're just seeing the creation account from a slightly different perspective being told for a particular purpose highlighting the uniqueness of the man, of humanity, in God's created order. And so uh, we see in verses 5 and 6 a description of the, the land, of, of the place. And uh, a lot of people want to go back to Genesis 1 and say, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. It says God pre- created uh, the greenery and so forth. And, and I'm, not, I'm not sure commentators kind of you know, disagree as to what's going on here. He may be specifically referring in, ver- to, in verse 5 and following to the unique way the garden that was in Eden was being prepared, that it was set up, then the man was created, and then the man was to see the abundant provision that God had made for them uniquely in that garden. Or whether it's simply some type of rearranging for some topical emphasis, and I'm not sure, I don't think that's important for us uh, right now. The two accounts complement each other. They're consistent with each other. Uh, The point is that God designed a place that is real, that God who exists outside of time and space has chosen to create time and space and then come to act within that particular uh, set of boundaries of time and space and uh, history. And so we we have a a place uh, uh, prepared, and it is a place that is described as being in an area, verse 8, that is called Eden, a place that is to the east, presumably, Moses, in writing Genesis, uh, was there at Sinai, and from his perspective, north and east uh, was this region of Eden. We'll say more about that in just a moment. Also, in verse 8, in that place called Eden, where God planted a garden, he was going to put the man there whom he had uh, created. And so uh, the place was prepared, and it was going to be productive. It's going to be useful. The man was going to manage it, and it was going to be manageable. And we're told there in verse 9 that the place was going to be 
productive. It was going to be pleasant. It's going to be useful uh, to the man. But we see first the first mention of the two trees that are within the garden. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One will sustain life. It will give life. One will destroy life and take life. And then we see the specific geography of Eden there in verses 10 through 14. And it would be my perspective, and again, a perspective that I hold with a number of commentators, that most likely Eden was located in what might be the southern region of Iran and Iraq. We have two rivers identified here in our text, the Tigris and Euphrates, that we're very familiar with. We know where they are. But there are two <coughs> that we simply don't know where they are. Now, uh, presumably, uh, it, one of two things. Either the people that Moses wrote to knew what these rivers were. If you look at a modern map of that area, there's a lot of rivers over there in that region besides the Tigris and Euphrates. We just don't know which one would be identified with uh, the name Pishon or Gihon. And so, uh, but most likely just north of the Persian Gulf, uh, there was the region of Eden, and within that region uh, would have been this place we know as the Garden, uh, which was uh, in uh, Eden. And it was, it was a real place. Again, this is not myth. That's the point of all the topography and the geography and even the geology. It was real. It was a real place in which real people lived. Now, it goes back to what I've been trying to make sure you understand that all of this modern nonsense is an assault upon reality. That God designed, God created, God put in place reality. And it's for our good. And it's for the, the ultimate good is what? To know God. What is the chief end of man? Got any good Presbyterians here? No, everybody's figured that out and left, haven't they? They've become Baptists. That's good. Praise God. Praise God. We've, we've, we've figured that one out. What is the chief end man? To know God and enjoy Him forever. God created us to know Him. And remember, as Augustine said, we will be restless until our hearts rest in Him. So, Eden was a real place with real geography, real geology, and it was well prepared for the creation of the man. Go back to verse 7. We see a specific, a second account of the creation of the man, of the singular man. 126 through 128, God creates the male and female. He tells us about how that was done, in a sense, together. But here he makes a, a, a distinction, a distinction of order that he is going to create the man first. And we're, we're told that God formed the man. The, the Hebrew verb is yasar, and it's used by both Isaiah and Jeremiah to speak of the work of a potter. And I mean, even I have enough imagination to imagine the Lord God stooping down and forming out of the earth beneath his feet this unique being 
this unique creature, this unique individual, the man. And so he forms him. And, and notice here also within this passage, we get the double name for God, Yahweh Elohim. I think that's very important that God is going to reveal himself here as the one who is going to uniquely make a covenant with a peculiar people. More about that later. Again, so the Lord God formed as a potter would form a vessel from the dust of the ground, and then he brought him to life. That which was inanimate became animate by, by means of breathing into him. Man is constituted from that which is most common and that which is supremely uncommon. Formed from the most humble of elements, dirt, and animated uniquely by the very breath of God. The panorama of man's constitution is inclusive of base elements upon which we walk and extends to the impartation of life from God himself. And so man became this living creature. He became rational, responsible, eternal, and a majestic divine representative upon the well-prepared earth. Again, Moses is taking time. The earth is ready for the man's representation and management. We have a good man on a good earth that's going to be cooperative and it's going to be conducive to uh, a life that is going to be characterized by flourishing. Man is oriented and inclined toward God, and the earth is inclined to cooperate towards the man. All of that's really, really interesting and really, really important, but you won't get the contrast until next week, so come back. So, a good man upon the good earth uh, prepared to do uh, that which God has ordained for him. And so we see in the third issue here that God is going to take this man whom he has formed. Remember, the creator is going to define for the creature how he is to live upon the creation that he's designed for his well-being. And I'm not... I, I, I used to kind of like this. I'm not as crazy about the, this kind of way of speaking now. But sometimes uh, people will say, well, you know, the Bible is God's owner's manual. Again, uh, most of us have bought, whether it's a car or a phone. Of course, they don't put owner's manuals with electronics anymore. You have to figure out how to get the electronic device on and set it up to go get online to look at the owner's manual. But another story for another day. But there is a sense to where the Bible is God's wisdom. God, as the owner-designer, knows how to instruct those he designed and created as to how to live well, to live in a way that is compatible with his good design. So let's look at this business of the covenant <clears throat> with the man. Verse 15, the Lord God took and put, and it reminds me of how Paul spoke 
to the philosophers at Mars Hill. We looked at Acts 17 a few, month, few weeks back. And Paul said this, And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, and having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. Remember, all of creation is designed so that men would know the God who stood behind creation, okay? And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yeah, he is actually not far from us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Now, I don't know that Paul was thinking back of this, but, but that God put Adam in the place that he was to live is, I think, an interesting concept in that God has sovereignly ordained, he has put us in a particular place at a particular time uh, for, indeed, a particular purpose, which we've already stated, haven't we? What is our purpose? What is the chief end of man? And so the man is put in the Garden of Eden, and he, he is given an assignment. And I think we could probably spend a lot of time there, and we could talk about uh, the, the purpose uh, for the man and, and something of, of the meaning of the why uh, of the man. I don't, I'm not going to have time to really unpack it that much. But, but in verse 15, we see uh, two terms joined together. The man is put in the garden, given the assignment to work it and keep it. Those, for those verbs, the, the word work is the Hebrew abide, the, the word keep, uh, is the Hebrew verb aboda, and it will be later used to describe the work of the priest within the temple and the tabernacle. That that, and, and, and I don't I don't think it's a stretch that right here we see the first Adam as the prophet, priest, and king of the world. Because what? God has already instructed him, or he will instruct him, as to how he is to live. He is going to be given the word of God that he is to speak to those to whom, or over those to whom he has authority. And so you see right there a prophetic function of the man, also a priestly and a kingly function. Uh, there within uh, the garden. And so we see here, verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, notice there, not suggesting, commanding. This is the way it should be. This is the way it must be. Remember the distinction. I'm the creator and you're the creature. And this is the way it goes down. I have the authority and I have the power to command, okay? And woe be us who would question God's right to command, to demand, to design and say, this is the way that you must live. And so here in verse 16, he commanded the man, you may, and I think some translation, this says surely eat. I think some of the trans freely eat, I, like, I kind of like better. Freely, it's yours. 
All of it belongs to you. I created it. I designed it. I've been thinking about this for a minute. And I want you to have everything that you would need to be happy. It all belongs to you. And so you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So we have the prohibition and then the punishment. If you eat of it in that day, without any question, you will surely die. So in verse 16, I'm going to suggest to you that we see the fundamental elements of God's primary methodology of condescending to engage and assign his man his role in God's creation. The methodology or method or instrument is that of the covenant. The specific type of covenant is often referred to as a suzerainty treaty. That is, it is a treaty established by a superior with an inferior or vassal entity. Uh, a study of the Bible is by necessity of study, a study in the utilization of the, the concept of covenant. Simply put, a covenant is an agreement in which two parties bind themselves together for a defined purpose with defined benefits and defined prohibitions and defined punishments. Here we see what can properly be called the covenant of works. Man is placed in the garden, and the simple meaning of all of this is do this and you shall live. Do this and you shall live well. This is my testimony to you. This is my revelation for you. This is my provision to you. And so it is appropriate, I believe, to say this is indeed a covenant of works. Of course, we know the tragedy of how this ultimately works out. More about that next week. This is a unilateral covenant established by God wherein he stated the terms by which the man was to function within the creation that he was mandated to rule over as God's singularly distinct representative. The provisions of the covenant were that God had and would provide abundantly for the man as he discharged his assigned duties. Man's freedom was limited by the prohibition regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and Eden. And so God provided for him a quality, a quantity and a quality that was satisfying and it was nourishing. And so we have this prohibition. The man must not eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Uh, there was an abundant, even unending provision and a singular prohibition that places as off limit this clearly identified tree. So Adam knew the boundaries. Now, let me, I'm going to just say a kind of a, a brief word, and again, I'll, I'll reserve a lot of this for next time. But what does it mean to acquire the knowledge of good and evil, and what's wrong with it? We, we, you know, knowledge is simply thought of as that as being uh, good. And so this transgression of the command, the violation of the prohibition, is first and foremost, it is a transgression of the stated will of God. It is a willful, it is a knowing act of rebellion against God. And it was a refusal 
uh, to recognize divine authority, and it was, again, to illegitimately exercise perverse autonomy. And through this rebellion, through this disobedience, uh, or, or through obedience, these human beings were protected from this deadly knowledge, but by their rebellion, they and their posterity would experience the dire consequences of their cosmic rebellion. This knowledge of good and evil, and this is where I think, this is, this is big, I think. This knowledge of good and evil that came to the man by his rebellion would involve the perpetual insistence of rebellious image bearers that they would define through their own intrinsic evaluation that which is good and that which is evil. They would be qualified to determine that which is good and right and true. In fact, I think you could say it this way, that history is the perpetual defining and redefining of that which is good and evil. We see societies that think it's a good thing to kill Jews. We think societies that think it's a good thing to limit families to one child. We see societies that think it's a good thing to enslave dark-skinned Africans and on and on and on we could go because people broke God's covenant because Adam rebelled. And so man is in this perpetual system and re-systemizing of that which is good and that which is true and that which is evil and that which is wrong. And again, they do it and they practice it to their own demise. They, they suppress, Romans 1, distort and pervert that which is good, and they are going to continually embrace and promote and defend that which is evil. And through this knowledge, they are severed from the tree of life, and they experience uh, the two types of death. Mortality, physical death, and spiritual death, that is, separation uh, from God. And so, the man is established and instructed in the garden with all that he needs. Let's look next at the companion suitable for the man. Look at verse 18, maybe the most shocking term to be found in the entire account. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good. Now, the consistent refrain through the course of the creation account and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw it was good. And he created man, he said, it's very good. Now, please understand, I do not believe this is some type of moral evaluation. That, that I, I believe it's a literary device that God inspired Moses to say that I want you to think for just a moment. And that, that the creation is incomplete. Now, we like they, should have in the back of our mind that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, God created him. Male and female, he created them. Well, where's the second half of the them? Where's the female part? It's, it's, it's not good. And so, you know, we're kind of prepared for this. But the man, as we said last week, he cannot fulfill the mandate by himself. Now, there's some perverse notions that 
Uh, Adam possessed all that was necessary within his body uh, to reproduce. It's a great idea. It's just wrong. It's just stupid. Okay? So anybody that comes up with anything like that, just with all the love you can muster, just say, you're an idiot. Okay? That, that, that's probably a pretty good way to handle it. I, I don't know. Yeah. But it's just, it's just wrong. Okay? I'm, listen, and here, here's the thing. I'm, I'm learning some things, believe it or not. And I'm certainly, I try to be gentle and kind and tender and compassionate and all those things sometimes. Uh, but sometimes, I mean, people come up with stuff that's so stupid, you're just like, I, there's no sense in me even trying to unpack this for you. You, you, you. Listen, I'll help you get out of the hole, but quit digging. Quit throwing the dirt on me. Okay? So, anyway, all right. So, there's a pregnant, intentional pause that is designed for us to think about this business. And we see in verse 18 uh, kind of the corrective resolution. Now, you know, all of us have electronic devices. You know, some of, them are, some of you are looking at them now. And invariably, your phone will update tonight when blah, 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 blah. I'm like, why does it constantly need to update? Well, you know, there's a glitch. We got we to gotta do a hack. We got to do a patch. That's not what's going on here, okay? Uh, there, there's not a corrective of a mistake here. But again, God has a plan. And we see there in verse 18, it's not good. And here's my resolution. I will make him a helper fit for him. I've, I've got someone in mind that is just right. I've got a plan that is perfect. And so uh, helper is the Hebrew hazir, and it's one who is to come alongside and to give aid and to give uh, support. And this helper is suitable. The, the Hebrew is konegdo, and, and it's the idea of literally like that which is in front of him. The idea of correspondence, of, of being uh, complementary, of of completing. And so God has a plan. And then in, in, in verse 19, once again, Moses goes back to, to create a little bit of literary uh, tension there in that we see that the man is the sole worker within the garden, and he's naming uh, all of these uh, beasts and all of the creative order. And this is important. Please get this. Because the man is ordained as the leader of the human family, he's the leader of the world, he names the different aspects, the different creatures that share creation with him, and he will also name the woman. Again, just a notation of his authority within the home, and I would add, within the church of the man. And so we see that here. We can, we'll talk more about that later. We can't, I don't want to get bogged down in it. But the Lord has a corrective. He makes a unilateral uh, decision as to what to do. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. You see that in Genesis 15. When God makes a covenant with Abraham, 
Man goes to sleep, God does a great thing, okay? Maybe, maybe wives, let your, husband think, let your husband sleep. Maybe they'll do something great, okay? Or maybe something great will happen. I don't know if that's a, a legitimate biblical principle to draw out of this or not. But God puts the man to sleep because it's God's unilateral decision, design, and doing to bring forth the woman. It is his idea. And so while the man is sleeping, we, we get the description. God takes one of the ribs, he closes it up, and he takes and he, he forms it into the woman. And, and so uh, the woman is taken uh, uh, from the man, and she is made for the man, and she's given uh, to the man. And the man recognizes the goodness of God's design, of God's wisdom. He recognizes that she is the helper suitable, that she corresponds, that she completes, that she complements. And he says it here, this is, na- this is at last Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I've been naming all these animals. I'm so tired of looking at stinking elephants and tigers and mice and snakes and birds and fish. I'm tired of it. Now I see something that really has my attention. I've never seen anything like her. She is unique. And boy, do I like the differences. She is splendid. She is wonderful. I see so much of me and her that this is going to be a a great cooperative effort. And what does the man do? He names her. She shall be called, in the Hebrew, Esau, because she is taken from Ish, the man. And so even the English maintains that play of word, woman and man. And so God determined, he acted, he took, he formed, he brought, he gave, and the man joyfully received. She, the man evaluated her as good. She's like me, but she's different. She's a gift, and she's my responsibility. I'm going to name her. I'm, I'm going to take appropriate. Now, please, let me say this advisedly. Don't have a fit. I will take the appropriate ownership, the appropriate rulership. I will, I will hold the appropriate authority in terms of our relationship. In other words, he takes her for himself. And so we see here kind of in verse 24 uh, a bit of, of, of commentary, divine commentary as to what has just taken place. Therefore, again, based on what has been said, Therefore, this is a perpetual, repeatable reality that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. So the man leaves and he cleaves and he is united and he sanctifies the wife in being joined to her and they become one flesh. And again, kind of a a, a radical notation, they were innocent, they were completely acceptable to one another. There was no concern, there was no doubt that they were going to be mutually cooperative and beneficial to each other in their nakedness without uh, any shame. And so there you see the creation of the, the first home, 
the first, uh, again, uh, human uh, uh, society, so to speak, uh, that, that God created and God gave as a good gift, a good gift for humanity, uh, designated uh, in certain ways the man uh, to lead uh, this entity. And so there is a brilliance in the design of those who participate in marriage. I believe he designed us male and female, and this is why you don't mess with it. This is why you don't come up with the stupidity that I see and hear every day is that we were designed for the male and the female to enjoy each other in what we would call heterosexual, monogamous marriage. And any assault on that is straight from the pit of hell. And it smells like smoke. And so, I belabored this a good bit this morning. Let me bring us to a bit of close. Why is this important? Most people, you know, they think, oh, we're going to talk about the home. Yeah, you can, get that, that, you can get that rebellious wife of mine to submit. Or, oh, that, that, that sorry husband, you, you can get him to lead me and love me. And I, I that way my life will be better. Well, let me tell you something. I'd love for your life to be better. I really would. I hope it is. I hope this helps. But whether your life is better or not, this is ultimately important. Okay? This is of ultimate importance that we defend these truths, and we live out these truths as necessary, as essential to our own well-being, to the well-being even of the world. And so, the reality that, that the, there's an essential priority of male and female as complementary image bearers, and to recognize this is to recognize God's sovereign goodness and wisdom to create a fantasy world in which both identity or roles can be exchanged, exchanged, blurred, diminished, diminished, demeaned, destroyed, defaced. It's cosmic treason and cultural insanity. And hear this, hear it well. To abandon your role is blasphemy. To usurp the role of another is blasphemy. It is not essentially different than this whole nonsense of I'm a man in a woman's body or vice versa. It's not a whole lot different when you abandon that which is designed for your well-being, namely the family. And so... There is indeed an essential necessity of male leadership within the home. He was designed for it to lead, to work, to protect. The original covenant was communicated to the man as that first prophet. The man was created first, as Paul recognizes. And so, all of these things are essential for our understanding and for our practice. To destroy what God has designed in marriage is to assault God, creation, and reality. To undermine it doctrinally, to diminish it legally, to devalue it culturally is to self-inflict a mortal wound upon humanity. For the church, marriage is the present incarnate drama that demonstrates and illustrates the gospel. That's why after quoting Genesis 2.24, Paul describes the reality as, the, as a mystery and that the referent of the mystery is Christ and his beloved church. That is the ultimate importance of what is being communicated in Genesis 1 and 2. It is fundamental 
to the proclamation of the gospel. Christ sent the second Adam into the world to reverse the ruin of the first Adam through redemption. God sent the second Adam into the world to rule and subdue with the aid of his bride through the fulfilling of the Great Commission. What we see in marriage is the realities of God sending his beloved son to claim a bride as the son left his Father in heaven to come to earth to seek the bride. The Father gave to the Son the bride. The Son sacrificially has secured the bride through his life and his death. The Son is united with the bride through the work of the Spirit. The Son lives to protect and provide for his bride. He is ever-present with the bride, and he has given everything the bride needs to flourish and await the consummation. And so, the world is actively seeking to destroy that which is most demonstrative of the gospel. And I would say this is possible because the visible church has been so dismissive, so deluded, so unprioritized, so undermined the permanence and purpose of marriage. Notice I said visible church. I, I take, going back to some things John Piper said years ago, there's a big difference between people whose names are on a church roll, those who show up occasionally, and the true regenerated body of Christ. They have a far different look at things and a far different practice of things. And so, the battle will continue. It's not going to stop. And it is necessary. It is necessary that we know these things, that we defend these things, and we recognize the strategy of the enemy. Because, again, the ultimate goal is to destroy the church, the God of the church, and the message of the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. I pray that we would honor you, that in our lives, in our humble and imperfect attempts, to carry out your mandate that the world, that our families, would indeed see your gospel. Bless us as we continue to worship uh, through our celebration of the Lord's Supper, that which you have given to us to also illustrate, to dramatize the great truth of your gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.